Reaching the New York Times bestseller list is a huge achievement and major aspiration for most authors, but it's certainly no accident. To get there, you have to be doing something right. What that is, I want to find out. I'm Graham Cochran, and in each episode of How to Become a New York Times bestselling author, I'm having conversations with some of my personal favorite authors, all of whom have reached the pinnacle, as I seek to learn exactly what steps they took and what strategies they implemented to get their book to the top of the writing world, and more importantly, get their message out to the most people possible. And if you want to support me in my author journey, pre-order my book, How to Get Paid for What You Know Now on Amazon or wherever you buy books. I'm even including $100 worth of pre-order bonuses if you take your receipt to grahamcochran.com book and sign up there. Now, today's guest is Michael Hyatt. And Michael is the founder and chairman of Michael Hyatt & Company. He's scaled multiple companies over the years, including a $250 million publishing company with 700 plus employees and his own leadership development company that has grown over 60% year over year for the past four years. Under his leadership, Michael Hyatt and Company has been featured in the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest growing companies in America for three years in a row. And in 2020, the company was named to Inc.'s best workplaces list. He's also the author of several New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling books, including Platform, Living Forward, Your Best Year Ever, Free to Focus, The Vision Driven Leader, and his newest book with his daughter, Megan, Win at Work and Succeed at Life. He enjoys the double win with his wife of 40 plus years, five daughters, and nine grandchildren. Now, Michael and I sat down recently, and in this conversation, he shared whether you should go with the traditional publishing, self-publishing, or hybrid publishing model, how his first New York Times bestselling book was almost canceled by the publisher, because they didn't believe anybody was gonna buy it, how his book platform became a New York Times bestseller, even though 90% of the book is still available for free today on his blog. He shares how we should view our books as an in-depth sales page for our courses and coaching. And at the end, Michael went way into depth in describing his seven-step process for launching your book and hitting the bestseller list. He literally pulled up a Google Doc of what he does for all of his launches. It's gold. I can't wait for you to absorb all of this amazing material. Please sit back and relax. My conversation with Michael Hyatt. So, Michael, I was telling you before I hit record, when I decided to do this little project, which actually was Cliff Ravenscraft's idea, he pushed me. He's like, this would be a fun project. And immediately I was like, I would love to do this. Um, so when I thought of this mini series, I wrote down a list of authors that would be a dream to interview. Uh, and some have said yes, some have said no, some have not gotten back, but you were at the top of that list for a lot of reasons. Um, one, I really, yeah, you're welcome. I really respect your business. Um, you put, you put family first, your family's in the business, which is pretty cool. Uh, we have a similar business model underneath it, even though it can look very different and you've scaled it to a, a really big degree. Uh, you're an author, you're a publisher, you've been a literary agent. You, you've kind of, you have your you've had the scope of all of it. So I think you have a lot to bring and a perspective that's unique. And I just think you're a good guy and um, you're the kind of person that I think we need more people of in this, in this space. So I'm glad you've found success and and God's blessed your work. So uh, what I I wanted to start it off because when I actually reached out to you, um, 
your assistant Jim said back in like five months ago, yeah, Michael would love to, but can he do it in five, five months from now? I said, wow. I mean, I understand he's busy, but I had no idea you had this three month sabbatical following the release of your book uh, that just came out when it worked and succeeded life. So I just want to know how was the sabbatical? What's, what's the quick why behind taking three months off, which I applaud and maybe what's your biggest win from the sabbatical? Well, when I left the world of corporate publishing back in 2011, I was the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, and we sold the company to HarperCollins, and so it was a great opportunity for me to to make an exit and pursue what I had dreamed of doing for years, which was to be a full-time author and writer and speaker, and so that's what I did. And uh, ever since I, I left that world, I've taken a 30-day annual sabbatical every summer usually, and typically my wife and I, we go to someplace fun or someplace interesting, some, sometimes in the U.S., some, sometimes abroad. But it's been a great thing. But um, I turned the company over to my oldest daughter in January of 2021, so this year. She's our new CEO. I've stepped back a little bit as founder and chairman, and I said, I want to take three months kind of as an experiment and try that this summer. So there were good things about it, and there were bad things about it. One of the best things about it was – it's the first time I've taken that much time away from work. So it was a great time to get really sort of focused on a couple of hobbies and just doing some th- some things that I ordinarily wouldn't have time to do. So I got really serious about playing the guitar, something I had kind of given up after college. And you can see the guitars in the background. I've gone crazy. And I took lessons, and that was a lot of fun. I think the negative part of it was, honestly, I think – I, I had forgotten as as much as I, I talk about the need to put parameters around your work because so many people burn out from work. I think sometimes I have forgotten the incredible value that meaningful work is in that it gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a way to make a contribution. It orders your life. There's a lot of benefits. In fact, I'm going to be doing a podcast on my podcast about this very uh, topic in the next couple of weeks. So it was, it was good and bad in general. I love the concept of extended time off, but I think for me, 30 days is is about right, and more than that becomes unproductive. But hey, I learned, so you know, it wasn't wasted. That's a very honest answer. It's I appreciate that. It's funny this this summer I dropped down to one day work weeks um, to spend more time with my kids. My wife has a business and she works two days a week, and then I decided to make sure I was home the two days she was working. So we were with the kids. Someone was with the kids every day, and I just worked one day a week and. I talked about that in an episode of the show as well, that there was a lot of benefits time with my children. They're age 12 and nine. It's a wonderful season of life with them, but it was interesting. I felt very disconnected from work and I felt, um, yeah, I felt like, man, I I actually want to contribute more. So it was good and it was bad. Most people either laud the idea of taking time off, off as if it's the only greatest thing or the opposite. It's the worst thing. Which is interesting because this is something I wanted to ask you about before we get into your author journey about your book, When It Work and Succeed at Life, which is a book I wish existed uh, before I got started. Um, and I'm, I've been learning that process, and it's it's really cool to see how that message and a lot of what I'm trying to teach aligns, and it's been just really encouraging to see that book do well. Um, but at the beginning, you talk about these two antithetical mindsets, the the hustle fallacy and the ambition break, which I really love that you talked about that. Can you just briefly define what those two are and then – Explain what the third option is, something you call the double win. Yeah. So I think, you know, for many people, they think it's one of two options. And I've 
I fell into the hustle fallacy at the very beginning of my career and for a lot of reasons related to my background and whatever, but man, I wanted to make my mark on the world. And so I doubled down, you know, put my nose to the grindstone and I was working 70, 80 hours a week. And, you know, today we have lots of people that advocate for that. We have Elon Musk, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, a bunch of, you know, great guys, brilliant guys, but they really advocate for this hustle fallacy idea. The problem with that is they don't really have time for self-care. You don't really have time to take care of your family. And my family and my health are both very important to me. And I kind of had a health blowout about uh, 20 years ago. Thought I was, you know, having a heart attack. Thank God I wasn't. But I ended up in the ER three times based on, you know, panic attacks and stress, but all related to work, just stress-induced. And kind of had a come-to-Jesus moment with my wife when she said, you know, you've got to stop working so much. The family cannot handle this. And so I can remember, Graham, this conversation I had with my wife about 20 years ago after I had turned around this division at Thomas Nelson Publishers, where at the time I was a divisional manager, and uh, I went on to be the CEO eventually, but I was a divisional manager at that point. I took over the worst performing division in the entire company. We were number 14 out of 14 divisions. And in about 18 months, we turned it around and went to number one in every important financial metric. And I got the biggest bonus check I'd ever gotten. It was more than my annual salary. So I, I headed home and thought, oh, my gosh, my wife is going to be over the moon. This is like the biggest accomplishment of my lifetime, my biggest career accomplishment for sure. And so I, you know, bounced into the to the den and unfurled the check and said, here you go. What do you think? And she kind of looked at me, not that impressed. And she said, um, we need to talk. And so we went in and sat down, and I could see that she started to, to tear up a little bit. And she said, you know, I am so proud of you, and I'm so grateful for everything you do for our family. But if I'm honest, you're never here. And it needs to change. You're never at home. You're always at work. And, and the worst part about that, she continued, was that your five daughters need you now more than ever. And even when you are home, you're not fully present. You know, you're somewhere else. And I, I felt very defensive and a little bit angry, but I knew in my heart of hearts that she was right. And she, she teared up a little bit more and began to cry. And she said, you know, honestly, I feel like a single mom. Well, that slayed me because that wasn't what I was going for. And I knew something had to change. Well, when most people get to that point, they kind of feel like they've either got to choose their work or they got to choose their personal priorities, their, their health, their family, other things that are important to them. And so if it's not the hustle fallacy, some people apply what I call the ambition break, where they throttle back their professional ambition uh, in order to, to make sure that their personal priorities don't suffer. But, but honestly, that's not very satisfying either because you're left with unfulfilled potential you know, you don't feel like you're really making a contribution or making a dent in the universe. And there's this sense of purpose that you don't have. So that's not acceptable either. And I think most people feel like when they get to that that point, Graham, they're, they're facing what I call the impossible choice. You know, pick one or the other. You can't have both. But I begin to wonder at that point if it would be possible to experience what I now call in retrospect the double win, where you could win at work, kill it at work, you know, build a great business, have a great career, and at the same time, not compromise your health, have an amazing family life, still be in love with your spouse, all of that. And, you know, it took me 20 years 
uh, to figure it out a little bit. And I've still, you know, not arrived, but uh, I figured out some things along the way. And I think it's absolutely possible. And I feel like, you know, I've been living that for a number of years, that double win. I've got about 500 plus coaching clients in our business coaching program. They're all in the pursuit of that at various levels. And many of them have experienced that and offered uh, compelling testimony to the fact that it's totally possible. And when you do that, it makes your success in both areas sustainable. I was about to say the same thing. It actually enhances both your quality of life when your work yes. is sustainable and your work is improved when your home life is, is, is healthy and your physical body is healthy. You're sleeping. You're not coming into yes. work drunk. As you talked about in the sleep chapter, you're functionally drunk. If you don't get enough sleep, you operate the same. I appreciate you sharing that story. And, I, and you, I've heard you talk about it in the book and it's, it's pretty candid. Um, and I'm grateful because it led you to write this book with, with your daughter and it's going to help a ton of people. I know it has. Thank you. Um, let's talk about book writing because my, my okay. book's coming out in a few months, uh, how to get paid for what you know. And one of the uh, catalysts for me getting published was I took a course you put out called Get Published. And uh, uh, and so I, I checked it out. I went through the whole course and um, it really helped me get focused because I, I was unsure about the process of book publishing. And one of the questions I had that you addressed in the course uh, was traditional publishing versus self-publishing. We have so many options now with self-publishing. I have never written a book, but I've been publishing on my blog for 12 years. I've been YouTubing for 12 years, you know, podcasting. So I'm, I'm used to instant, like make something, put it out there, get feedback. I don't need a middleman. I don't need a gatekeeper, but you talked about in the course, some of the pros and cons of both. Could you address some of the pros and cons of traditional publishing, which is the route I decided to go versus self-publishing and just maybe give us uh, your take on it since you've been in the publishing world and you are a published author as well. Yeah, well, I've done both. So I've got a traditional publishing contract. I've published about nine books through traditional publishers, and I've published, I think, five self-published books. And so there are pluses and minuses for both of them. The thing I like about traditional publishing is that it allows you to stay focused on what you do best, which most authors, uh, if they're good at anything, they're good at creating content. But they're probably not good um, with book packaging and typesetting and figuring out all the marketing and the distribution and the manufacturing and all the things that you have to figure out to do self-publishing. So um, as my friend Skip Pritchard says, who used to be the CEO of Ingram Book Distributors, he says with traditional publishing, you let the publisher handle the ugly parts of publishing and you get to part uh, focus on the part that, that frankly is the most important, which is creating compelling content. So I like that. I also like having a partner that um, that comes alongside me and can give me honest third-party feedback. So I'm not just left to myself, but I've got an editor that I'm not paying who's working for the publishing company and serves as a proxy for the audience and can give me real honest feedback. Sometimes you hire an editor on your own when you're in, when you're doing self-publishing. It doesn't always have to be the case, but sometimes you get a little bit biased feedback because they're working for you. You're signing their paycheck. And it's not quite quite the same. So I like that aspect of it. The, the thing I like about um, self-publishing is you're, you're certainly far more in control. You're, you can speed up the process or slow it down. You know, you can do it on your timetable. Um, you also get to keep more of the money. You know, it's, it's theoretically, at least, it's more profitable. 
But you kind of have to resign yourself to the fact that you're probably not going to be in airport bookstores. You're probably not even going to be in traditional bookstores. And, you know, that's not as important as it used to be. And, and in fact, in my case, over 50%, even of my traditionally published book sales, come from Amazon. So, you know, that's great, too. You're probably not going to get, if you self-publish, you're not going to get your book on Audible. You might, but you probably won't get an audiobook. You definitely, you know, you you have to work at the Kindle thing to make that work. But there's just... You know, there's pluses and minuses, and it all depends upon your objective. Personally, if I was just telling somebody all things being equal, I'd say try to do traditional publishing if you can. If you find that you can't get a publisher, then do self-publishing. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. I, I felt that that resonated with me. Uh, one of my good friends, mm-hmm. Jordan Rayner, is a best-selling author, um, and I really reached out to him. I was like, what do you think, like, for someone like me? And, and the conclusion I came to was, like you said, I want to try to get tr- a, a publishing deal, a book deal, Partly because I've, I do everything by myself, so the partnership thing makes total sense. I, I, I want someone to rip my stuff apart. Um, I've certainly never written a book, so that sort of format seemed long, and I want to make sure it didn't get like you know loosey goosey as we got through. But I wanted someone who could help me clarify my message from a different lens, who doesn't care about my my YouTube channel as much as they care about like what's going to sell a book and how do people buy books, think about books, interact with books. What makes a what, what about a book length? I didn't even know how many words would be appropriate for this type of nonfiction. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, in my, my experience was, you know, a lot of people said, no, I think I had about 40 publishers say, nah, there's nothing here, but, but two publishers said, yes, they would love to offer me a deal. I actually got to choose, which was a great experience, but I learned a lot, even in the interview process with some of the publishers about thinking about the title and thinking about the message and really pushing me and challenging me, which I think for someone who works alone and a lot of my audience, they're self-employed solopreneurs. I really like that idea of working with somebody else and not doing yet another thing all by myself. So that makes a lot of sense. I, I will say there's kind of been a something that's cropped up in the last few years that I would call hybrid publishing, where you do get the benefit of some assistance from somebody else. And you're not just left to your own devices, but you get some of the benefits of, you know, self-publishing too. Like I can think of, you know, one of my clients and I, my business coaching program is uh, a company called, um, self-publishing school and they do a great job there's another company called morgan james that kind of has a hybrid model so you know for for people that kind of want the best of both possible worlds you know that's that may be an option worth looking at yeah i actually had uh david hancock from morgan james on this show um oh he's, he's a great guy a yeah and a lot of insight there and he works with a lot of entrepreneurs who again they have a, a platform they have some marketing chops and so yeah he's got some creative stuff going um, I almost wish I, I had pitched to him. I didn't really know about Morgan James in that depth, but uh, you know, maybe maybe that'll be a partnership down the road. But he's a good dude, and I think you're right. There's a lot of options there I, related to that because my audience are online business owners primarily. Um, so they have courses. You have courses. They have coaching or memberships. You've done all of that. In your experience, in your business, how have books play? What kind of role have they played in either driving sales of courses or coaching or the, on the back end of courses and coaching, how do you view it when you know you could pop out a course and sell it at a high price point and use some email marketing to make some revenue versus the long drawn out process of a book? How do you see them all fitting together? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, people do pay different amounts of money when the same content is presented in a different format. But let me t- let me speak to that, Graham, from two perspectives, one from a content development perspective, and then secondly, from a marketing perspective. So from a content development perspective, you know, my preference is to, first of all, 
uh, give speeches on the topic, then maybe put together a workshop on the topic where I can expand on the content and go a little bit deeper. But the great thing about when you're giving it live, that content is pretty fluid. You can make edits on the fly. You can iterate very quickly and and improve the product along the way. So it, it can still change. A lot of flexibility. Then what I like to do is go to a course. Now we're beginning to sort of solidify the content. Um, still not as, as solid or... Um, you know, when you get when you do a book and it's published, it's pretty hard to edit, you know, after the fact. It's pretty much set in concrete. But a course is not like that. You know, it's more it's still malleable, but less malleable than a book. So I like to go to a course. It's more formal. People are actually paying for it. Hopefully, if you do it right, you do a course. People are paying a lot of money for it. But they also get a lot of benefit. Then what I like to do is go to the book. So by this time, I've really had an opportunity to test the content, sort of beta test it, alpha test it, beta test it you know, go through several versions of it. And by the time I get to it, to the book, it's pretty nailed down. You know, I've had the benefit of, you know, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people going through the course. And I pretty much know what resonates, what doesn't, what's not clear, what is. And I can I can create a book that's really powerful. So my book, Free to Focus, is a good example of that. So I was talking on those topics of, about productivity, and then it, be, it began to sort of coalesce around um a certain specific curriculum. And so I created the course, the free to focus course. And then ultimately I wrote the book on it. And I, I still think that's one of my very best books because it had the benefit of that entire process. Your best year ever was also similar. So the fear is always that uh, once you publish the book, people will all of a sudden say, Oh, well for $20, I can get the benefit of a, you know, $500 course or a thousand dollar course or a $2,000 course. So why should I ever do the book? Well, as it turns out, that doesn't seem to inhibit course purchases. So we do your best year ever as a, a live event every year, and the attendance just keeps going up, despite the fact that the book's out there. Because here's reality. Most people are going to read the book, but they're not going to change that much. You know, I'd like, I'd like to believe that they're going to change a lot, but most people have a hard time going from a book to actually making serious change in their life. Where if it's a, where, when it's a course, people can go much, much deeper. So we still sell the course, Your Best Year Ever. In fact, I'm filming the 2022 version here in a, in a couple weeks. So the course will do great. And the book serves as a sort of a, you know, to use marketing language, a top of the funnel kind of mechanism for getting people interested, giving visibility for the course, and then finding their way back to the course because they want somebody that will serve as a guide and actually take them through the content. Um, Jeff Walker, a friend of mine who's a big marketer, is also a guy that has discovered that. You know, he's had this, the launch formula has been his perennial course for, I don't know, maybe 12 years or so, and has sold gazillions of copies and helped people like me make millions of dollars off courses. But he published a book about five years ago and just came out with a new edition of it, sort of version 2.0, hadn't hurt his sales at all. All it's done is just create visibility for the course. So that's how I see it kind of as a as a fancy, more in-depth sales page or sales brochure that sells everything else you're offering. And I, I think it's really important if you can to kind of have the, the customer journey mapped out, where they start with you and where they end. And I'll never forget a conversation that I had with Brendan Burchard about a month before my book Platform uh, release. And that book hit the New York Times bestseller list. But 
I, I wanted some marketing advice because the, the world of online marketing was kind of all new to me. And the first thing he said to me is he said, so, so what are you going to upsell them to from the book? I didn't have an answer. I said, I'm a month out and I got nothing. He said, that's a big mistake. He said, because the purpose of the book is not to sell the book. The purpose of the book is to sell something else. And, and he is a master strategist when it comes to this. This is exactly what he's done. Huge value in the books. No question about it. But everything needs to upsell something else. So now the way that we think about it is the book is a, is a top of funnel, not the very top of funnel, but it is, the, it is a top of funnel strategy that it's ultimately designed to get, a, get people deeper into our product line, either our full focus planners, which is a physical planner product, or to get them, you know, best of all is to get them into our business accelerator business coaching program. That's our highest ticket offer. And frankly, the one where we create the most transformation for our clients. Yeah, and that all makes so much sense. I actually had Jeff Walker on the show, and we were talking about that very thing. Oh, good. Um, and I was really excited about his his new version of the book, which you picked up. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of fear of you know why write a book and sell it uh, when it's this, like literally the same thing in my course. Uh, for me, I've, I've been thinking about it the opposite, which is like I have a course, uh, Automatic Income Academy, and it's it's how to build an online business that's that's automated. It's not you know you having to spend a bunch of hours in the office making it work and you know, that started out by teaching people one-on-one coaching and then teaching it in a mastermind and then solidifying it into a curriculum as a course that I sell. And then when I wanted to do a book, I pitched to, you know, my agent and some people and authors like a couple of book ideas before I put together a proposal. And they said that one would teach people how to have alternative work, do something different, make a living online. They haven't considered it. And I realized this is just my course in book form and this is going to be this is going to be a different audience than people that are finding my course. Yes. So I, I I would rather give them the whole method, all the steps, so they go they see what's possible, maybe believe what's possible. But I think you, you're right; most people don't take action, and they're going to want more. They're going to want help, uh, even if they hear the same message over again. Something Ramit Sethi said years ago that stuck with me was, you know. You should, when people complain about, well, if I've already said that before, I taught them this before, don't, don't they want something new? And he said, if you're lucky enough, you should be feeling lucky if someone even hears your message, period. And you should count yourself super lucky if they hear it a second or third or fourth time. And it just sort of changed my perspective on, yes, like have those consistent messages. And even if they hear them over and over again, that's what sinks it deeper and deeper and totally. bonds you closer to your audience. Yeah, you know, one of the things that that was surprising, I think, to my traditional publisher that published Platform was that every chapter in that book was originally a blog post. Now, it got polished and it got enhanced, but honestly, 90% of that content was available for free on my blog. But here's the problem. Nobody wants to go through and assemble it and put it in the right sequence and make sure they're moving through it in a coherent way. And so what the book did was it put it in a sequence. It said, okay, start here and then go here and then go here. And it created sort of the the mortar between the bricks too, so that there was transition that made it all make sense and made it cohesive. And like I said, that book was a New York Times bestseller and continues to sell to this day, even though all that content is still available on my blog for free. People will pay for the convenience of just having it in one spot. 100% agree. I think people mis, misunderstand how powerfully true that is. I love that. Let's talk about that book. I mean, was that your first New York Times bestseller? No, I actually wrote a book back in the 90s that was a New York Times bestseller. And this is, 
kind of funny to look back upon it, but do, do you remember the whole Y2K crisis? Oh, yeah, I wrote like a parody song about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wrote one of the two best-selling books on that topic, a book called The Millennium Bug. And it's a funny story. It was like my first book, and I was rejected by 29 publishers. Number 30 said yes and paid me a modest advance. And then uh, uh, six weeks before the book was to be published, the publisher called me and said, he said, I got to be honest with you. He said, we cannot give this book away. None of the booksellers want it. You know, they think it's too technical. They don't get the Y2K thing, and they just think this is going to be a dud. And so we're going to have to cancel publication. I'm so sorry. So I'm, I marshaled all of my sales skills and talked the publisher into printing 2,500 copies. And so he reluctantly did that, I think just as a favor to me. And didn't think it was going to go anywhere and thought he would probably, you know, end up taking most of those back in returns from from booksellers. But the book took off and I had a crackerjack publisher, a publicist that was working with me that was getting me on all kinds of radio and TV to talk about it. So I think over the course of one year, I did like twelve hundred. I'm not making this up. Twelve hundred interviews. And the book was on The New York Times bestseller list for twenty eight weeks. So it was a ginormous success. And which which is kind of bad in a way, because early success, in my experience, when I've observed it in other authors as a publisher that I've coached, early success is never a good, good thing because you kind of get full of yourself and you kind of think you got it figured out and you think, you know, the formula and it's never that simple. You know, I just got lucky and, you know, caught the wave at exactly the right time and it worked and it's not always that easy. Did you, that's hilarious, by the way. Um, good for you. Uh, so two questions. One, do you feel like the success of that book was because of the timing, like you said, the wave and, or is it your publicist getting you in front of so many people that is, is it just that combination or like what? Like is, yes, okay. I think, I think if you can catch a cultural wave where there's something that's sort of building in the general culture, but it hasn't peaked yet. And if you can catch that wave before it's actually hit the beach and ride it in, you know, that's that's awesome. The problem with those kinds of current event books is that it's really easy to miss them. And so or miss the wave. You know, I when I was at Thomas Nelson, we started a publishing division called uh, Nelson Current, which was just mostly political books, but books that had to do with current events. And I would say that. um we had a few books that hit big, but probably 90, 90% of the books totally failed because we misread the moment or the wave had already hit the beach or there was a there were a plethora of authors addressing that same subject that all came out at the same time. So it's pretty tricky to get it right. It's very high-risk publishing. So do you recommend people avoid entirely sort of current event or trendy publishing things and just do more timeless things that – people will want to read for 30 years or is it just give it a shot and see if it works, but just know that it probably won't (laughs) like what's the encouragement there? Well, I I think it fundamentally comes down to a sense of calling. I mean, if there's something you feel like you need to address and even though you know that it's going to be temporary, you probably need to do it. Right. But just know that, that the odds are against you and it's going to be difficult and the book's not going to be selling. I mean, that book on uh, January the 1st, 2000, that book was dead. Yeah. It was no longer relevant. The whole thing was over, and it came to a screeching halt. So, um, and that's going to happen, probably not that dramatic, but that's going to happen for most of those current event topics is there's going to be a point at which that topic is no longer relevant, 
and the book dies. Sometimes it can come back alive. You know, we saw a lot of books that were published on uh, issues related to race and uh, equity and all that, you know, in the summer of 2020, books that had barely had a following all of a sudden rocketed to the top of the bestseller list because everybody wanted to read them. And so authors that were previously unknown, books that were languishing in the, you know, the archives of Amazon, you know, suddenly uh, came back alive. So that can happen too. But for me as an author, uh, if I had to choose, I would choose books that are timeless, that are going to be selling year after year after year. And that's what I focused on after that experience. I did another book in the wake of that that I also thought, oh, my gosh, I've totally caught the wave on this one. This is, this, is, this is where I was a little full of myself and thought I had it figured out. And so I thought the issue on privacy is building. And so uh, I wrote a book called Invasion of Privacy, basically how to protect you from the surveillance state and how to protect yourself from surveillance uh, corporate America. And it was timely. It had all the same kinds of elements as the Millennium Bug. There was fear baked in and there was all that stuff. And the book came out a month before 9-11. Wow. And, and so what happened there was that in 9-11, as you, you may recall, privacy was suddenly a dead issue. Yeah. Nobody cared about privacy. All they wanted was safety. And if we had to give up some of our privacy to the TSA or somebody else, people just didn't want to hear about it. And I got no media. The book died, sold a couple thousand copies. And I basically had my head handed to me. But it was, it was a great lesson in humility, and it's probably what I needed. Wow. Such a uh, wide variety of book topics. So that's my second question. And I asked Cal Newport this because his books early on were about winning at college and very, you know, student yeah. focused. And, and now he's writing about, you know, totally different stuff. That's fascinating. Did you feel pigeonholed into like, oh, I got to write about these types of things? Or, or would you feel like, I don't care. I'm now I want to write about platform and, and write about all this, you know, online stuff? Well, I think I was so discouraged after Invasion of Privacy failed that I thought, you know, I've tried the author thing. I got my one shot, you know, I got my 15 minutes of fame and I guess I'm done. So I applied all my energy into publishing. I felt like, you know, God's called me to help other authors get their message out. I see myself sort of as a literary midwife. I did at the time. And so I said, that's where I'm going to get my focus. I'm, I'm going to stop writing. Well, that lasted till about 2004. And then I, I broke my ankle ended up getting surgery on it and it ended up in bed for a week. And I said, that was about the time that, you know, I discovered blogging and I said, I'm going to start blogging, you know, cause I really have this creative itch to write and I'm just going to start writing about what's interesting to me, mostly having to do with technology and productivity. And I had no aspirations to be a book author. I just was trying to find a way to sort of get my ideas out into the world and maybe I could help some people with productivity. And so that's what I did. And so I did that literally from 2004 till 2011 when I left Thomas Nelson. And that was when I wrote my next book. So I didn't have a book from 2001 till 2011. So it was 10 years from that book that failed till the next book. And that next book did get on the New York Times bestseller list. But and then, and it was just I was just kind of following my interest. Now I've settled into a groove. I still follow what interests me, but I also try to stick more narrowly into what uh, I think could help my clients. So that's always my first question is, is what do my clients or my customers need to hear from me? So, sorry, but just to reframe yeah. this. So th this is what big publishers do. They essentially, they get an author to write something 
And then they try like crazy to find a market for it. Seth Godin had told me back because I'd become a friend of his back in the uh, back when I was the CEO of Thomas Nelson. I, I remember meeting with with him at his home in uh, New York, and he said to me, he said, "This is what most publishers do." And I said, "Well, yeah, guilty as charged. That's what we all do." And he said, "Here's the better approach: build an audience, serve that audience, and then find topics." that'll serve that audience. In other words, write books for that specific audience as opposed to writing a book and then trying to find the audience. So over the course of that, what, seven years from 2004 to 2011, I had built this audience. I'd built a pretty sizable mailing list. And so then my question always became, how can I serve this audience? And it did shift. After I did the platform book, I got much more into uh, personal development and goal achievement and productivity and you know, topics related to business coaching, leadership, and so forth. And that's pretty much where I've stayed focused. But it's always serving the same audience. I, I love that because I think my audience, that's what they're being trained to do. And that's what they're doing is they're trying to, I'm trying to tell them to build Good. an audience. You know, I always say without an audience, nothing is possible. But with an audience, anything is possible, including totally. selling books. Um, but I love that concept of just writing books for your potential clients, your current clients, because they are a subset of the whole population and there's going to be more people yes. like them. That makes total sense. When you, when you, when you wrote platform, did, did you feel like you had it? Or what did you do to help that book get to the New York times bestseller list? Was it like, look, I've got this mailing list now. And, and, and ironically, probably the book platform is a microcosm of how you've had sustained success as you've built an audience. You have a platform to sell it to. Was that a big part of the book sales, a big part of the marketing? How did that play in with your publisher and their role? And, and what did it take to get on the list that time? Yeah, I've actually uh, got this codified. This has been kind of the formula, one version of this. This is the playbook, and I'll just give it to you. So the first thing I did was I set a goal. So I set a goal for, you know, a smarter goal, which is something I talk about in your best year ever. But I said, I want to get platform on the New York Times bestseller list by May 30th, 2012. So I'm not just kind of throwing it out there into the world and, you know, hoping, but I've actually got a target. There's something I'm trying to achieve. Now, I would say that putting the New York Times bestseller list in your goal, probably not a great idea today, because to be honest, the New York Times is the least objective, most finicky bestseller list out there. Nobody seems to know what the code is. It seems very arbitrary. It's definitely not pegged to book scan because there's been there have been times when I have sold more books in a week, legitimately sold them in a week than their top selling book that was number one, because I'm looking at the book scan numbers, too. Right. And so I've outsold the number one book and still didn't end up on the New York Times bestseller list. So if you're going to hit, shoot for the bestseller list, which I, I think is a reasonable thing, just make it more generic to hit the bestseller list. All my, all my books since Platform have hit the bestseller list, but only Platform hit the New York Times bestseller list and and uh, the Millennium Bug. But I've hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, USA Today bestseller list, um, you know, all the other bestseller lists out there. But that's how I would change it today. But start with a specific goal. Second... And this really comes from my years as a traditional publisher. I assumed responsibility for the success of the book. Huge mistake that a lot of authors make is making the publisher responsible for making the book a bestseller. Here's reality. The publisher's got a lot of uh, plates spinning. They, frankly, most publishers aren't that good at marketing. They're distracted. They'll go through the motion. 
And if something hits, they're pretty good at chasing it and pretty good at fueling, you know, what what happens organically. But they're not great at, at creating demand. So if my publisher does some things with re- relationship to marketing, great. I'm thankful. But I don't blame them if the book doesn't sell. That's on me. I take responsibility for the success of the book. Number three, I engaged my tribe early. So I like to engage the tribe in, in doing things. I want to get them vested in it. So like I'll run titles by my audience. I'll create a private Facebook group. I'll create a launch team. You know, I will uh, solicit their early feedback to chapters. And all that stuff creates ownership on their part. Plus, these people will be my greatest advocates and ambassadors for the book once it comes out. Fourth, do, am I okay going oh, through this, this? You're giving us the gold, Michael. Keep, <laughs> keep going. Okay. All right. So I, I secure endorsements. So endorsements are, are often for a lot of authors an afterthought, but they're critically important, especially in an age when there are so many books, we don't have time to read them. And we let other readers, other professionals, other experts be the proxy for us. That's why when, you know, I go to buy a book on Amazon and you probably do this too. What's the first thing you do? You look at the reviews, right? You want to look at the rating and you want to read some of the reviews. So the best endorsements that you can get are, are endorsements from people that are household names that everybody knows. If you can't get those, the next best endorsements are experts who have fancy titles after their last name, like they're a PhD or they're, you know, the medical director at a big hospital or whatever it is that's germane to your field. But at the very least, just get other readers, again, to serve as a proxy. And then what I do is I, I literally, I'll, I'll, normally, I'll normally shoot for 35 to 50 endorsements of every book I write. Even to this day, I've got a new book coming out next year called It's All in Your Head, and it's all about how our thinking influences our results. And so we went out to, I think, 60 or 70 potential endorsers and asked for their endorsements. And we have a whole way of doing that, you know, how we do it. But you got to secure those early, and you got to go to them. And And here's one secret hack that I would say is really important. Go to the person. Don't send them out blanket, you know, 70 people or 50 people or 30 people. Send one request to the person you think is most likely to endorse the book. Then you take that endorsement and you roll it into your email to the second person. So I could say, like like at this new book, and not the name drop, but Tony Robbins endorsed it. So now I go out to everybody else, and Tony's a friend, so I go out to everybody else and say, hey, here's what Tony said about the book. Now I've just given to everybody else I'm going to ask the gift of going second. You know, they don't have to wonder who they're going to be associated with. You know, they know. And John Maxwell's endorsed it and a number of people. So I just, I'll bake that until I get about three. And then I'll keep sending that out. And I'll keep reminding the people that haven't endorsed it yet. Hey, you're in good, you're going to be in good company. You're not alone. Here's what some other people have said about the book already. So get those endorsements. I lace the first several, and you can pick up the copy of when it work and succeed at life. Cause I know you got it there, but the first several pages of the book and including the back cover are just laced with endorsements. Cause I want people to go to have this experience. I want them to say to themselves, any author that can get that many endorsements, that's gotta be a book that's worth reading. Okay. So that's sort of the endorsement philosophy. The number five, I form a formal launch team. So I issue an invitation. Usually go out to my email list and I say, I'm, looking for 500 people or 
750 people or 1,000 people or whatever it is, you're going to get a free copy of the book in digital form in exchange for writing an honest review on Amazon. We don't ask them to write a five-star review. We don't ask them to write a four-star review. We just say, look, read it and write an honest review. And that's all we're asking. And then that if you really like the book, we'd, we'd be grateful if you would promote it to your social media you know, audience. So that works fantastic. The best part of it is, is that from day one, and we really push them on this, write that Amazon review. Because if you're, if you're out there doing podcast promotion or radio promotion or you're getting media, people are going to um, initially, I don't care where you're promoting the book, the first place they're going to go is Amazon. And if there are no reviews, it's going to cause them to pause. But the faster you can get the reviews, and the reviews will not go live until the book is live. So we push everybody to try to get those reviews done on day one so that people that are coming in from various media appearances will see all those reviews and go, oh, you know, people have read this and people like it and it's rated highly and therefore I'm going to buy it. So get that launch team. Then, um, then I focused the promotion. So, and what I mean by that is if you're trying to drive the bestseller list, it's all about the velocity over the first seven days. So you got to get as many sales as you can in that first week and preferably the second week so that it's sustained on the bestseller list because the way that BookScan works, it's going to measure the sales from like Sunday night till Saturday night and then it's going to report. And whoever, whichever book had the most sales is going to be number one. Whichever book had the most second most sales is going to be number two and so forth. And then some outlets separate that by genre. So nonfiction and fiction and children's and so forth. But uh, BookScan doesn't actually do that work. Those bestseller lists do that work beyond that. So I want to get as many sales through the cash register in that first week as I possibly can. So what that means is that I, I this is point number seven. That was six. Focus the promotion. Um, then in number seven, I create a can't say no offer. So I, I basically say to people, if you buy the book in this window, and now we focus it on, you know, before the book comes out or even up through the first week, we focus it. If you buy the book during that, that period of time and bring the receipt back to us onto our sales page and enter the receipt number in, We'll give you anywhere from, we've done all kinds of things, $300 to $500 worth of bonuses. It might be videos, anything that will help people implement what you're teaching in the book faster, easier, cheaper. You know, it's got to be really juicy, and it's got to be germane. It can't be unrelated to the book. It's got to be related to the book. It might be a special Facebook group. It might be um, a series of webinars that you're going to do. It could be any number of things. People could go to um, win at work book com or I'm sorry, win and succeed book.com and they can see an example of this. And if you do forward slash Graham, that's a special page that we created for you, Graham, for your audience. But you'll see what we've done there. Even today we're running a bonus for doing that. Now here's the dirty little secret. I shouldn't tell you this, but we don't ever validate those receipts. People get to enter in A, B, C, D, and we'd still give them the bonuses. But honestly, we did some spot checking when we first started this strategy, and we could never find anybody that abused it. People are pretty honorable uh, when it comes to that. So that's kind of the strategy. The only other thing I would add is I, I have found of all the media that you can do, television is hit or miss. And frankly, I found it, generally speaking, a waste of time. 
the last book I did television promotion for is I went to New York for Living Forward. And, you know, you get if you get a two-minute segment, you're lucky. And usually you're casting it really broadly, and not much happens. Occasionally it works, but more often than not, you know, it's vanity. You know, it's it's makes you feel good. You got to say you're on TV, but it didn't accomplish anything in book sales. The second best is radio, and particularly long-form radio, where you've got more time to talk with uh, a radio host. But most of that's current events-driven and probably is not going to pertain, you know, to most people's books. The absolute best media that you can get, highly focused, highly impactful, is podcasts. Find the podcasts in your genre. Like if you're writing a book on health, go down through a list of all the top health podcasts And if you don't have a publicist, do it yourself, but pitch those podcasters on having you on their program. But you better know what their program's about. I mean, I get pitches multiple times a week from people wanting me to have on my podcast, and it's clear they haven't listened to my podcast. They don't know what my show's about. And I just, I literally, I used to respond to those. I just delete them now. No, it's funny. I get the same thing. And I can't imagine how many more times you get get those requests, but mine's a solo show, and they're always like, this would be a great guest along with your other guests, and I don't have guests on my show. I get that all the time, too. I don't have guests either. By the way, one thing I didn't mention that I probably should have mentioned is, obviously, if you've got an email list, that's gold. We have about, I don't know, last time I checked, about 600,000 people on our email list, and that's gold. We're mailing to them multiple times. We're doing our own promotion to them, but I'm really talking about here about setting it up, but you don't have to have a big mailing list. If you've got 6,000 people that love your message or 5,000, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You know, it just, it's, it's like kindling that gets the fire started. That's how you need to think of it. First of all, that was gold. Thank you. Everyone listening, watching there, there was the playbook and it's exactly what I'm going to be doing for my book. We're in the early process of that. And then second of all, it's so meta because your book platform, I think, goes back to this and my audience knows this now that you need an audience and and man that's going to separate an author from having a chance at selling books versus not unless you're you know Barack Obama you're going to sell books no matter what but that was amazing uh thank you for the specific, specificity of that um I love the win and succeed slash gram go check that out both to you know get the book and support Michael and, and Megan and everything they're doing but also see sort of a peek into how they're doing things thanks for sharing that I love that you're welcome. One final question. Uh, this has been amazing. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Is when you hit the New York Times bestseller list, that's what we're talking about in this show. And again, it's an aspirational goal. But when you hit it, how did you feel? Was it like, yes, this is the goal I set out to? Or was it not what you expected? Did it mean, does it mean anything to you personally? I've, I've talked to people that said, nah, I never thought about it. I just hit it. And I was like, whatever. I think Dan Miller was like, I didn't even think about it. And he, and he, and he hit it. But others were like, yeah, that was a goal I had. And it, I wanted that next to my name. It, what was your take on that? Yeah, well, Dan Miller, who is one of my closest friends, is the exception to the rule. You know, he's just wise and mature and is just not that impressed by stuff like that. Me, I was over the moon. Now, you have to understand that uh, that book, that first book, The Millennium Bug, Bug, came out in May. And in March, I got a call from the publisher that said he was canceling publication. It hit the bestseller list in July. So I went from... The book's not going to be published. I'm going to be embarrassed in front of my friends because I'm going to have to tell them the publisher pulled the book. To all of a sudden, now, I, I mean, I'm my full-time job is doing media for this book. And and the book's hit the New York Times bestseller list. And it's selling like 
hotcakes. And then I end up getting these big royalty checks and all this stuff. But the thing about it that's great about it, and even if it's the Wall Street Journal bestseller list or USA Today bestseller list or Publishers Weekly or any of the bestseller list, you forever after that get to put on the cover of your book, New York Times bestseller. You get to be introduced when you speak, New York Times bestseller. Everything gets plussed up. You, your, your speaking fees go up. What people will pay for your courses goes up. You know, everything uh, goes up. You suddenly have credibility. There, there's probably not much in this culture that will give you more credibility than becoming a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, it's more valuable than a Ph.D., it's more valuable than success in about any other realm. For some reason, the culture looks at that and goes, oh, well, we need to listen to that guy. But I would caution people, too, against uh, there's a lot of people out there that that have kind of cheapened that word bestseller. And so you have these people and have these strategies where people get to number one in some sub, 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 sub category in Amazon. And then they put bestseller on their name. And, you know, I, I personally, I just don't think that's legit. You know, if you're not a best-selling author that's been credentialed by a third party, one of the legit bestseller lists, don't use that title. It just makes you look scammy and, I don't know, just manipulative. I saw an article where a guy took a picture of his toe and s- sold that as the book in some sub-subcategory on Amazon and became a bestseller. <laughs> <I'm sorry too>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's so good. Hey, Michael, this is amazing. I appreciate it. Thanks for the honesty, too. I love that. And, yeah, when I talked to Dan, because he's on the show – he was like, oh, I didn't care about New York Times bestseller. I was like, dang it, but I do. I've got a whole podcast called How to Become One because I would love to become one. Uh, and he was my first interview for this series, so it was kind of like, oh, crap, I just need to grow up. But it was fun. I love it. This was, this is, I mean, this is, you, you've done what so many of us would love to do. Um, but, but really what you've done is you've created content and a brand that matter, that, that serve people, that help them. And Thank that's you. why you've had the success you've had and why your company continues to thrive. And I wish it all the best. I'm excited for the new book. That sounds incredible. Um, and for the one that's out right now, Win at Work, Succeed at Life. Pick it up anywhere books are sold or go to winandsucceedbook.com slash Graham and check it out there. Michael, thank you so much for your time, brother. Thanks, Graham. Love doing this. That was an amazing conversation. Michael was super generous. I enjoy my time with him a ton. Be sure to check out his book at winandsucceedbook.com slash Graham. Get a couple of bonuses there. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss another upcoming episode with another amazing New York Times bestselling author. And if you want to support me in my author journey, my goal to reach the New York Times bestsellers list, then pre-order my book, How to Get Paid for What You Know. It comes out March 2022, and it's available at Amazon or wherever you buy books. Hey, maybe buy a second copy for a friend who wants to launch his or her own online business, monetizing their knowledge, skills, and passions. And like I said at the top of this episode, I'm giving away over $100 worth of bonuses instantly when you pre-order the book. Just grab your receipt, go to grahamcocker.com slash book, and follow the simple instructions there to get your instant bonuses that you can start enjoying right now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on another episode of How to Become a New York Times Bestselling Author.